It's 2019. It's 2019. Yeah, it's 2019. It's 20, which is it? I think we 20, had a, I think we say 2019. It sounds cool. We it? had a we had a, a couple of good bits of good news over the over the break, did we not? We had the news that we all our podcasts are now on Spotify. Yeah. Which is the second biggest after iTunes place now where people get their it's where the young people get their podcasts. So we're lively and When the younger people are looking for something about Anthony Pohl, it's to Spotify. <laughs> it's to Spotify they turn up. Okay, yeah. good. The second bit of good news is that the Anthony Pohl episode has been the most successful one we've done. And we think that that might be connected to Spotify. Can we we say don't it? know, but I'm absolutely delighted. I really enjoyed it on the night, that episode. But also the thought that it's going out there around the world and it's being streamed on the same platform I, I, as I, Kanye West and Taylor <laughs> Swift. Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. It's very pleasing. So did you get any nice books for Christmas? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't get any. I got, <laughs> books. Books. I got I, No, I got some nice books for Christmas. Um, I got all my Elizabeth Taylors and I got Proust. We, uh, and you, have you read any Elizabeth Taylor? Love it, of course. It's like um, a sharp kind of glass of vodka after the foaming ale of Lawrence, I have to say. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and you started reading In Search of Lost Time. Which, yeah, but which translation, I, which translation say, have you? I, which translation I mean, I've you? only st- read a little bit, but I was expecting it to start with somebody dunking a biscuit and it doesn't. A rich tea in a cup. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Lawrence would do. <laughs> Did it? Did which translation have you Scott got? Scott Moncrief, Kill Martin. Um, yeah. It's the one yeah. that vintage do. I've already put the screw on John by saying to him, "If you get through it, then that's our Christmas episode for 2019." <laughs> what a thought! I think that's An a hour idea. of light-hearted chat about in search of lost time, but, yeah. we, but it would be great to do it. Yeah, maybe we should get Alain de Botton. Certainly mm. ambitious. Catherine, did you um, get any nice books for Christmas? Well, I actually um, don't tend to receive books for Christmas. Uh, I think perhaps my family and friends think I already have too many books. Of course, you can never have too many books, but I did receive one book. Henry Green's last novel, Doting, published in 1952. Have you done Henry Green on the unbacklisted? We've tried. We've tried. tried. We've I tried. see. We have an empty chair, like Tiny oh. Tim's. Okay. <laughs> Doting is probably not his best known. I think his best known is the books that are packaged together as a trilogy, Living, Loving and Party Going. But Doting, interestingly, he died about 20 years after it was published and he never never wrote another novel. It's about a middle-aged woman and a younger woman who sort of run rings around this um, civil servant who's married to the old woman. Uh, I have to say I haven't started it yet, but I I do love his um, experimental writing. I think he wrote once about writing that it it was uh, the act of writing was a direct intimacy between the writer and a stranger and i think that's quite a lovely phrase it's a a very nice addition poll as well and even more so they're all part of that eton oxford cabal rachel did did you get any nice books for christmas i i got i got bought a copy of of melmoth by um sarah perry which (sighs) i've been dying to read um, and which I have not yet started because I've been busy with rereading Lawrence. I read a book at Christmas which I absolutely loved, which is Watling Street by John Higgs. It's a book I've been oh. really I've, read. I've read that book and I've interviewed John yeah. about Tell that Tell us about it. Yeah. Great book. It's, it's a, um, it, Watling Street is uh, uh, the road that runs from Dover to Anglesey, uh, one of the five ancient pathways of, of prehistoric Britain. And he does what could be, uh, you know, a, a run-of-the-mill psychogeographic journey, but it's much more interesting that. It's a sort of reflection on Brexit, on Britain, on divided Britain, on the future, on the on the nature of what he calls 
uh, Teilhard de Chardin's brilliant term, the noosphere, which is the kind of kind of symbolic. I mean, you know, there's the biosphere where animals and plants live, and then there's the noosphere, which is the place of ideas, which is where human culture lives. And he talks about the noosphere of Albion, the old name for the islands of Britain. It's uh, there's a fantastic bit, and I was telling the boys last night. Of, uh, of where he goes to interview Alan Moore in his in his house in in Northampton, and there's a picture of Alan Moore with his his kind of snake's head stick pointing at an empty bit of ground next to Superior Carl's <laughs> garage. So this is the absolute centre of <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's a, a really, really good book. I, yeah, I, yeah. I devoured it. I have to say it was I haven't read a book of that kind that I've enjoyed so much for a long time. I got three books mm. which I I think map the territory of my psyche and personality absolutely perfectly. They are Paintings in Proust by Eric Carpleys, <laughs> which goes through In Search of Lost Time in the order in which these paintings appear, talks about each painting or painter that's mentioned by Proust and reproduces oh the painting, right? And so you can either dip into it, it's quite interesting to dip into, but if you read through it after you've read In Search of Lost Time from cover to cover, it's like a sort of brilliant whistle-stop tour through this 3,000-page book. I, I really loved reading it. It was the perfect way to see out the end of that year of reading it, right? So I'm saying to you, Great. John, you know, don't buy it this year because maybe I'll get it for you for Christmas. Excellent. This year, at the end of the year. Uh, the second of my three books was uh, The Beastie Boys book. <laughs> Brilliant. Which is fantastic. fantastic yeah. As a pop book, hip-hop book, I'm sure they put it together. Whoever helped them do it has really got the feel of Grand Royal magazine in the 90s, which is the magazine that they published. It is really funny. It's full of loads of good photos. It's great. And also, it's got an incredibly moving ending. They've done a thing for their deceased colleague, which is just beautiful and really brings a tear to the eye. So that's really great. And then my third book was the folio edition of Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. <laughs> oh, so actually I was the publisher of that particular edition. Oh my God. I brilliant. now have to confess. How fantastic. And that is a coincidence. That's a total coincidence. It's a coincidence. Funny enough, that is on my TBR list for this year because I, I have a feeling that we might, that we might we might be able to squeeze an actual uh, episode. Well, well you could well, probably ask Philip Pullman to come in because I commissioned the introduction from him. That was my cunning oh, plan. Yeah. <laughs> so it's mentioned, uh, it's a big part of A Dance to the Music of Time. Yeah. And because I've finished the dance the music time because I finished in such a lost time I wanted a, a, a substantial reading project for the year Anatomy of Melancholy is a big old it's a big, beast, it's a, right? it's a big it's unit three <laughs> volumes and uh, it's, it is in fact out of print so sourcing it proved challenging for the person concerned but they did it I'm really pleased you got it yeah um, I was, maybe I'm next I could suggest Hobbes's Leviathan if you want a big project to read for <laughs> 2021 if you haven't got anything else coming up so I suppose we ought to get on with the actual. Pop well, this is the this is just the warm up, Nick. This is the this is just the warm up. Shall we start? Oh, oh, sorry, Nick. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Uh, I've got seven books. I asked for books. You have to guess. I got probably the book that I think most people got this Christmas. Normal people. Apart from she's that. already read normal Not people. Really. Michelle Obama. Yes, Michelle. Yeah. That Obama. was the Chris. Was that the best selling book yeah. in? I think it was. Yeah. I read it. It's and very enlightening, actually. I was it? Say. Yeah, yeah, very good. So thumbs up for that. Thumbs up for Michelle Obama. Also thumbs up for the Lily Allen 
Now, I hear that's really great in the Lee Allen book. It's no shame. Yeah, it's good. And it's also <laughs> interesting because it's about she's positioning herself as a narcissist. But interestingly <laughs> enough, as a pop star who does things that male pop stars are acceptable, but right. females it's considered not acceptable. So that's why I say interesting. Mm, she's very interesting. Very interesting. Do you think your year of producing Backlisted has resulted in an upswing in the quantity of books that you got. I mean, by about 600%. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Perfect. One person at a time, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we start? Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you join us as we stand on a hill looking down on the rich, marshy grasslands of the Midlands, a church tower illuminated by moonlight, the wind at our backs, the dome of stars shining down on us, the call of a lone owl quickening our blood. (laughs) (laughs) God almighty. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and joining us today are two returning guests... Rachel Kerr, publisher and editor, former publicity director of Jonathan Cape, marketing director of Picador and Harville, now editor-at-large for Unbound, who joined us for the Charles Sprawson episode on Haunts of the Black Masseur. And full disclosure that she is married to the man, John Mitchinson. (laughs) Um, How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Okay, good, good. (laughs) Okay. And uh, we're also joined by Catherine Taylor. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello, Catherine Taylor. <laughs> Catherine Taylor is a writer and critic who contributes regularly to the FT, The Guardian, The Economist, The TLS, The New Statesman and The Irish Times and is a judge for the 2019 Republic of Consciousness Prize and commercial director for the brilliant Brixton Review of Books. And Catherine is a returning guest. She last joined us to talk eloquently about Vladimir Nabokov's The Gift, which was for some time our most popular episode and is still one of our most popular episodes. It's, it's the book that Rachel and Catherine are here to talk about is The Rainbow by D.H. Lawrence, first published by Methuen in 1915, which, with its sequel, Women in Love, is widely considered to be Lawrence's crowning achievement as a writer. I'm just going to say, John and I had a very nice, appropriate enough, Mexican meal before Christmas where we we talked about uh, what books we might do in the year ahead and guests that we might ask. And John has wanted to do... Lawrence and I think The Rainbow ever since we started doing Backlisted. So I was very up for that. And I was thinking, you know what, this will be great fun. Great, great. I've, you know, I'm, I, I, I come to Lawrence as a relative newcomer. But it'll be good. It'll be good to challenge my prejudices. And then we had a lo- this lovely meal and then we were walking back to the tube. And John went in a bid to sell it to me. He said, the thing about The Rainbow, Andy, is it's the one of D.H. Lawrence's books where he's channeling Thomas Hardy. <laughs> and, and at which point I knew I was in trouble. Right? Uh, uh-oh. A, a novelist I'm not sure about channels a novelist I really struggle with. Yeah. But we'll come on to that soon. We will come on to it. And I mean, it's also one of the reasons for doing it. It's not an obvious choice, obviously. It's, there are many more obscure books than The Rainbow. It's one of the classic English novels. But it was a book that I'd read a long time ago and hadn't reread, and it had been one of my favourites. And I just felt that um, Andy and I had glanced around it. There are so many, uh, over so many, so many previous podcasts that it would be a good moment to um, dust off the old copy and see whether it stood up to scrutiny, which we will find out with our, bef- the help of our guests in a moment. Before we get on to that, we asked people earlier in the week 
to tell us about the best, the best old book or backlist book that they read in 2018. And we got like dozens and dozens of responses to this. I wish I could read it. We can't return all your paintings, uh, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> but we can read out a few of these tweets. So I'm going to read out a few of these and see what the panel, be kind, everybody, makes of these as suggestions of books. But also, if you're listening at home uh, and you have a pen and a piece of paper to hand, it's probably worth jotting some of these down. I certainly want to read some of these based on the enthusiasm with which they've been recommended by listeners. So here we go, John. The first one that I've highlighted here is Matthew Adams. Hello, Matthew. Uh, Matthew suggested we read The Journal of a Disappointed Man by WNP Barbellion. I mean, it's the, your pinned tweet, isn't it, a quote from that book? I, it has been for some time, yes. And in fact, <laughs> I think it was mentioned on the very first episode I think of that was, I think it was mentioned God. in the if jail. You, in addition to Matthew, if you're out there and you have a deep, abiding love of the Journal of a Disappointed Man, contact me. <laughs> contact me. I'm saying you might get lucky this year, right? So here we go. Linda recommends Living Alone by Stella Benson. Written in 1917, the war as magic realism, completely delightful and melancholy. Wow. That sounds I've just never heard of that. It's amazing. You know, one of the things I found about these when people sent them in is how few of them I had heard oh, of. That's yeah, it was, I mean, I, I totally agree. It was a real revelation, actually, the, the list. And I mean, I've, I've jotted loads, loads down. You've got one there. I've got, I have got one here. It wasn't exactly from that tweet, but I was struck by uh, Neil Mudd's joke. Tr- tr- hello, Neil. Disastrous lifestyle choices, check. Gifted but obscure writer, check. Dead, check. <laughs> Anna Kavan sounds like a prime candidate for the Backlist well, of Pod yeah, Trees. We've near, we've near, the yeah. truth is we, we've nearly done Anna Kavan at least a couple a, of times. There's a new anthology in the offing. Yeah. So. Claudia Watkins recommends Mrs Eckdorf in O'Neill's Hotel by William Trevor, which she says is beautifully written and intriguing, atmospheric, sad and funny and amazing. Jill Hopper at Jill Hopper 1 says The Contiki Expedition by Tor Heyerdahl, <laughs> an adventure that made my hair stand on end. Sharks some ships. Nicky's read it. And? Yeah, it was good. Was very, it? Yeah, very, very adventurous. What I remember about that book is that book was on my parents' bookshelves and the bookshelves of all my parents' friends and when I was growing up. my bookshelves too. Yeah. Um, Do you remember it? I, I went to see the... the there was a film of the... Yeah. I remember taking my brother to the cinema to see the film of that. David Millington, who is at Green Corrie suggested a book I love, which I'd forgotten about, uh, Mythigo Wood by Robert Holstock. Um, I've never heard of it. A couple of people unfamiliar with my work have suggested books by Somerset Maugham. <laughs> and I just have to break it to you, it's never going to happen. Oh, start your own, <laughs> pod- bondage, start your own podcasts to do Somerset Maugham because it ain't happening on Backlisted. Uh, here's a good one. Gone with the Wind it says, Jackie, read this, lying by the pool in Kos. But being transported to the Deep South during the American Civil War, probably the biggest read of my life at 998 pages, but an ideal holiday read and a great page turner. I have read it. And, you know, I think it's uh, interesting. It's one of those books that so many people probably haven't read because they just associate it with the film. And? It's a brilliant book. Okay. Here's P. Lowe, which is um, P. Lowe, who recommends a book which I do love, Narrowboat by L.T.C. Rolt. He says, recommended for shepherd fanciers like John. It's very much in the tone of whichever book he recommended that mentions selling goldfinches in the paper bags. Oh, in a good way. A wonderful recommendation. That's the best. We've got Joel Pinkney here. Oh, yeah. uh, he recommends The Bridge of Beyond by Simone Schwartz Bart, originally published in 1972 and reissued by 
NYRB classics. An astonishingly well-told story of several generations of women on the Caribbean island of Guadeloupe. Much about the legacies of slavery. Gorgeous, heart-rending book. That sounds great. It does sound good. There's so many of these. The novelist Claire Fuller, she got in touch. She said The Wall by Marlon Haushofer. Yeah. Translated from the German by our friend Sean Whiteside, our listener Sean Whiteside. First published in 1968, a woman finds herself stuck in the Alps behind an invisible wall. Brilliant book and made into a fine film too. Jonathan Gibbs, our former guest, the novelist Jonathan Gibbs, says The Black Prince by Iris Murdoch Uh. was my favourite old book of the year. Old, well, it's a year younger than me, so go figure. It brilliantly showcases her ability to mix high and low, serious and ludicrous in the same book. And Catherine Taylor at Catch Your Taylor <laughs> replied to Jonathan saying, hooray. Well, that's because I wrote an essay on The Black Prince for the second issue of the Brixton Review of Books last year. Ah, did you? Oh, we can get you back in again. No, Fantastic. Tony Cross <laughs> at Lobster 71, Bid Me to Live by HD, the story of World War oh, I. Oh, yeah, I do listen. Can we do that, please? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that book. Yeah. And her. So it would make a good double bill with Richard Aldington's Death of a Hero, which is rather, you know, Aldington was a great mate of uh, D.H. Lawrence. James Doeser at James Doeser, Mrs. Bridge by Evan S. Connell, 1959. Something that might conceivably be grouped with that run of books you've had with sharply observed female protagonists using what agency they have in suffocating patriarchy, sweet and tragic with a crafty structure. Anna Maria Tuckett says, I read two novels by Dorothy Whipple, The Priory, and They Were Sisters, and enjoyed them very much. I was rather yeah. crushed to hear Carmen Khalil's low opinion of Whipple on the Elizabeth Jenkins episode. I'm afraid I share Carmen Khalil's low opinion. I'm doing two more, and then we'll, we should, we'll move we on to the main event. Professor Laura Vaughan, uh, I'd nominate The L-Shaped Room. Yes. Thank you, Professor Laura Vaughan. I absolutely would love to do that book on here. By Lynn Reed Banks, which I reread last year for the umpteenth time. Its depiction of unmarried pregnancy at a time well within living memory is astonishing, as is the characterful description of Bedsit Land in Fulham. You're singing my song, Professor Laura Vaughan. It's terrific, and it's the first of a trilogy. And finally, Caroline Raphael, our friend Caroline Raphael, says, The Humbler Creation. Everyone, I'm seeing if anybody knows who that's by. Anybody know who that's by? Pamela Hansford Johnson. Johnson. Yes. I did. Taut, crisp, and agonizing story of a marriage against late 1950s London backdrop. Uh, these look terrific as well. I think, haven't, haven't Pamela Hansford Johnson's novels, aren't they being reissued at the moment? I believe they might I, be. I, I think they might be. Them. Yes, I believe that's right. Anyway, listen, thanks very much, everybody. What we might try and do is put that full list up on our Facebook yeah, page we on the will, website. We will excavate it and, and um, put it up as a document on the, on the website. Um, so thank you so much for all your recommendations. And also, apart from the two people who nominated Somerset Maugham, thank you for your... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your nominations. Because uh, Nikki's got her head in her hands now. Don't be mean to the listeners, Andy. I just I don't like Sunset Morn, which really? which happens it's to dovetail with the yeah, author we uh, gathered uh, here to talk indeed. about. And we're here to talk about Lawrence. Hey, it can't all be book chat. Smoke Chesterfields. I I wonder if it would be. I mean, people who haven't read The Rainbow, a, a little bit of context. It was published in 1915. It was very rapidly impounded it was withdrawn from sale as obscene and it wasn't available again for another 10 years we 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 had a little chat before we started today and nobody wants to hear me bang on for an hour about my prejudices against dh lawrence 
some of which were overturned by reading the book, I have to say. Yeah. What I think is interesting is that Lawrence is an author who has always polarised readers for 100 years, basically, mm. and continues to do so now and for different reasons. It's such a strong flavour, such a strong personality coming through the writing. And so our panel here is made up of sort of all points of the compass, I think, of how people have felt about Lawrence at various points or feel about Lawrence now. Rachel, can you remember the first time you read uh, Lawrence or The Rainbow? I first read The Rainbow when I was an undergraduate and I loved it so much and I loved his work so much that when I went on to do postgraduate study, I, I had to write a dissertation a sort of 10,000-word dissertation. And um, so you had to choose a subject for that. And I, I was desperate to do D.H. Lawrence because I wanted to read everything. I wanted to read all the, the supporting, you know, all his letters and everything. I wanted to know more about him. And I went to my tutor, the very estimable and wonderful Judith Chernick at Queen Mary College, Mile End, and the sense of palpable distress when I suggested that I was going to do Lawrence, <laughs> the sort of dismal oh sort of, God. oh, God, do you have to? I said, yeah, I'm really sorry, but I really, really do want to do. And she said, oh, so, so, oh come on, which, you know, you, you better focus on a novel. Which novel are you going to focus on? And I went, I'm really sorry, but it's going to be Lady Chatterley's Lover, at which point she looked even more distressed. And over the course of the next two years, I, I probably caused her more upset than anything else. But we came to an agreement that in the end, you know, that we sh that sh I had helped her enjoy it more and she mm. had helped me temper my rather passionate feelings about D.H. Lawrence into a, something a little more critically cool. Mm. And, mm. and it was a fantastic experience for me. And the only reason I could do that was that at the time there were, there were three versions of Lady Chatterley's Lover in print with Penguin. I don't know if they are still in print. In the same, but because the way, well, we can talk about this later, but the way Lawrence wrote was that he would write a whole manuscript and then he would go, I hate that and start again, mm, not mm. to go back and edit in any way. So it was obviously very good training for me as a future editor of books myself, was that That's actually I looked at yeah, his, yeah. I was looking at his writing methods as much as anything else, which of course ends up with you comparing and contrasting three different versions of Connie's yeah, orgasm yeah, yeah. and the terrible terrible dark secret moments <laughs> I, I, and I don't want to do that thank you. <laughs> Catherine um, when did you first read The Rainbow uh, oh. I think I was about just before I went to university so I must have been 16 or 17 my mother was a huge Lawrence fan and I hate to mention Thomas Hardy sorry Andy also a huge fan of Thomas Hardy and I do see this book as you know is aping Hardy to some extent as part of that English rural tradition writing and I did love The Rainbow I'd I'd really not got on with Lawrence. I hated Sons and Lovers. I think I might have been forced to read it at school. I don't and like Sons uh, I and found either. it extraordinarily turgid and, and with all those sexist tropes that have been levelled at Lawrence. But I think what's interesting about The Rainbow, uh, which I revisited last year because I wrote an essay on it for a book called Literary Landscapes, was that I'd forgotten that it was set so near to where I grew up. So it's on Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire border, the Earwash Valley. It's a book that runs from about the 1840s to 1905, so it, it's sort of pre-industrialisation, but it also it really focuses on Lawrence's attitude towards mass industrialisation. And also he puts aspects of himself in the book, I would say the, the last part of the book, which focuses on Ursula Brangwen, who is the third generation of, of the Brangwen family, the, the farming family that uh, is being focused on in this book. And... Uh, 
I think one of the reasons it was banned, because obviously there's there's frank sex, there's sex between women, etc. There's unmarried sex. It was Anna dancing naked oh, in front of the mirror that was which seen when it, when it was up in the Bow Street Magistrates Court. Episode. That was one of the pieces that was pregnant read out. and dancing. Pregnant, pregnant and dancing. dancing. How dare she? In her own bedroom. But I think Lawrence herself. A, I think it's a book about Lawrence's own coming of age in a way that Sons in Love is. But he puts himself, I think, into the into the character of Ursula, and perhaps couldn't write about some of the things that she experienced as a man writing about some of his own inclinations, perhaps. So when I revisited it, I found it was marvellous. I just thought some of the episodes, his writing about the natural world, about the passion and tenderness between, particularly between Anna and her husband, their wedding, the few days that they are closeted together, and also about the battle between, in this case, men and women in relationships, was something that I didn't actually find sexist. I just find it very honest and yeah he does go off into these sort of the purple prose of his let's just say sort of shamanistic beliefs I I would like to ask John actually I don't actually get to ask John this but because it's this book where were you when you first read The Rainbow okay so I was um I was in Auckland in New Zealand and I had I'd read Women in Love and I'd not gone on with it I just finished school, you know, precocious, read Ulysses at school, thought I wanted to be, you know, a writer like Joyce because he was brilliant. Very embarrassing. And then read Lawrence, I thought, this is terrible. This bloke can't write. He's maundering on endlessly. And then something happened. I, I The penny dropped at some point. I watched the Ken Russell film, which is mad, of women in love. I mean, it's iconic, but mad. We'll come on to it. Keep going. I just, then I, I discovered... Some of his short stories, England, My England, and then I discovered the poetry, and then I had a kind of revelation about Lawrence. I felt it was, it's like taking George Eliot and Hardy and uh, and Dickens and putting all the kind of, uh, p- particularly the, the, those novels, even a bit of Jane Austen, in, and then suddenly just letting it explode. I felt a release. So I read The Rainbow and I completely fell in love with it. And I, the thing that we all don't like about Lawrence is, is the hectoring being shouted at loudly and poked repeatedly in, in the chest by a man who's got kind of very, very strong ideas about sexuality, about he religion. May have issues, about, yes. And basically, I think all his novels are this, aren't they? They're kind of a, 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 what he calls the metaphysic, the, the, the ideas that animate them. The key one in The Rainbow and Women in Love is the idea of, you know, man, woman, there needs to be a trinity, a mechanical modern world as opposed to the natural world. The novel is some kind of way of combining ideas about the world with character. When he says that philosophy, religion and science are all of them busy nailing things down to get a stable equilibrium, religion with its nailed down one God who says thou shalt, thou shalt, and hammers home every time, philosophy with its fixed ideas, science with its laws, they all of them all the time want to nail us onto some tree or other. But the novel, no. The novel is the highest example of subtle interrelatedness that man has yet discovered. Everything is true in its own time, place, circumstance, and untrue out of its own place, time, circumstance. If you try to nail anything down in the novel, it either kills the novel or the novel gets up and walks away with the nail. Which is... uh, (laughs) And that's also... That's great. Lawrence is... I think he's a brilliant critic. What you get in The Sense of the Rainbow is like the marriages go wrong before they go right relentless, endless sort of pattern of things going wrong and people not understanding one another and one moment everything seems to be going well and then suddenly, you know... Was it it your favourite novel, though? It it was for a long time. Or I used to say it was in the way that I used to say that Shake Some Action was my favourite song. 
same ingredients. Yeah, I, I mean, it's still a great song. I still think The Rainbow is a great novel. So what yeah. we're going to do now is we're going to raise a glass to D.H. Lawrence. Yeah. I feel like we've like we're welcoming him in, right? Yes. And we've got we've got a clip here. So we've got a we've got someone who's going to lead the toast for us. There's a prize if you can tell me who this is. Here's the first of the day, fellas. To old D.H. Lawrence. Name it. Name that film. Name that film. It's Jack Nicholson. It is Jack Nicholson in five of his easy pieces. Oh, he's so close, but he's not right. It's an easy rider. Ah, easy easy rider. Of course it is. Of course it is. In a funny kind of way, the difficulty in Lawrence is sort of the point. I think anyone who is interested in fiction, there is stuff to be gained from the rainbow. But if you're a pointillist, if you like beautiful, accurate, delicate, psychologically <laughs> kind of turned sense, then this is not the book for you and it never what will are you be. Saying? What are you looking at me while you say that? <laughs> yes, Andy. Well, <laughs> come on, I think you need to say something. All right, I'll say very quickly. No, what I'm going to say is I don't want to say why I don't like D.H. Lawrence because I think it, when I was working on my last book, it really changed how I read. And one of the things that it really changed for me is I'm reluctant to get hung up on whether I enjoy a book or not. Mm. right because i think we can't enjoy everything and actually enjoyment is an overrated element it's not to be discounted it's important but when it comes down to it there are just some writers whose prose you can't work with because of your particular makeup right and i had not read lawrence uh, properly until last year i read sons and lovers and i thought okay this is okay but i'm having to kind of muscle past the gag reflex in order to get this down (laughs) right this is this is not my taste Mm. and going into the rainbow i was sort of horrible for me because i was thinking i'm just not enjoying this this is too earnest and too purple so however i might appreciate it in principle with my knowledge of the history of the english novel with my reading of jeff dyer to help me identify what's good and what isn't so good when it comes down to it and this it's is as sophisticated as I'm going to get, I just don't like it. Yeah. I can educate myself to try and appreciate it, and that's what I should do. That's what I should do. I don't have any time well, I don't think there's any should going, about it, to no, be honest. No, but, no, but, you, like but, you, but you can't. Otherwise, you get trapped, don't you? You get trapped in a kind of thinking, oh, I like this, I don't like that. That's fine, mm. but... But you've given it a good go, Andy. I have tried. You've given it a good go. I've watched Women in Love. We can talk about Women in Love as well, which I went into. I went into Catherine thinking, I like Ken Russell. Ken Russell's film about Debussy with Oliver Reed is one of my favourite things. And yet it seemed like the absolute hellish coming together of... (laughs) (laughs) I just thought, oh... The problem with Women in Love is that it sort of becomes a parody of the book. And I I would argue that that book, I think, John, you you had that reaction to Women in Love when you read it. You read it before The Rainbow, as I did. It, it sort of spoils it. And I think so many people don't tend to read Lawrence, so they don't read the books. They see I, I, I a film like that. I think that's very true, because I, 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 I think I'd already seen the film of Women in Love when I, when I first read The Rainbow. And I read The Rainbow mm-hmm. first, and I was really... I think that's part of why I loved it so much, because it was nothing like that film. Who can no, forget Glenda Jackson as Gudrun? <laughs> I know, I mean, you know, beautiful to look at, but sort of horrible in every way. You know, I hadn't really enjoyed Sons and Lovers either. I'd found that really 
tricky. Mm. I would call of, that earnestness in yeah. the stream. Um, yeah. But somehow, just the sheer kind of beauty, if you just let the language kind of wash over and you and you just and the structure and everything else, it's all very beautiful. And what I love most about the rainbow and what really got me at the time, and still actually, you know, 30 odd years later, I'm reading it again. And what really makes it, it sort of sing for me is the attempt, sometimes successful and sometimes not so, to give inarticulate people voice and yeah, an understanding okay. of their own feelings, yeah, which I think is yeah. a wonderful yeah, yeah. thing to, to be trying to do. And I love the the men are warm and attached to the soil and the the blood in the mm. teats of the cows and the and the but it's the women who are looking. For those who can't the, see it, Rachel is actually <laughs> milk, milking, milking something here. <laughs> But it's I love I love all that I love the the fact that the women are outward looking and that is not yet I mean it, he gets later in his in his writing career the, the the opposition between men and women gets much more women are sharp and outward looking and difficult and and men are sort of destroyed by it whereas at this point they're they're in a balance I think what I took from rereading it was that it seemed to me as radical as it must mm. have seemed when it was published mm. and then, you know, almost immediately revoked, as it were, uh, in 1915. And to sort of put it in the context, that same year Virginia Woolf published her first novel, The Voyage Out, and around that time Dorothy Richardson was publishing her extraordinary sequence of novels which became Pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. And also it was published in the middle, well, the beginning, sorry, of the First World War. Um, he was a conscientious mm. objector... Mm. He hurried out of the country. Hurried out of the country. And also, you mentioned, obviously, Jeff Dyer's book, Out of Sheer Rage, about Lawrence. He's had such an influence on so many different kinds of writers. Uh, Helen Dunmore's novel, Zen or in Darkness, which is about D.H. Lawrence and his German wife, who was also a divorcee. Uh, they're living in Cornwall during the First World War and how they were targeted as uh, spies yeah. by the establishment. So Her, cous- her cousin was the, was the Red Baron. Yeah. I'm just going to read the blurb on the back of your edition, Catherine, of this. This is how Penguin sold you the rainbow. In about the 70s. Yeah. This is my my family edition. Yeah, yeah. His classic story of a family of Midland farmers. (laughs) It's terrific, isn't it? It's like the the comic strip presents the Yeah, and the tides of passion and conflict within them. A vigorous (laughs) and strong-willed breed. The Brangwins have been established for generations as a yeoman family on the borders of, North, of Nottinghamshire among the coal mines. When Tom Brangwen marries a Polish widow, he discovers that love must struggle to come to terms with the other forces that go to make up a human personality. To which you think, eh? That's, that's <laughs> not really adequate. Sorry, whoever, whoever wrote that then. Yeah. But, you know. So I... Um, so I was looking around. I was looking around for, uh, for for positives to accentuate in my experience, and um, so I've got. I found a couple that I wanted to share with you. The first is that I found this brilliant um, documentary about Lawrence that was made in the mid eighties, uh, um, a South Bank show that was made. Uh, they commissioned Anthony Burgess to make a, a film about Lawrence. Oh my lord! Did they? And and we've got a clip from that here. There's a thing in here um, where I found. I thought I could really this this Lawrence I could really get with. When he published his first books, the Bloomsbury intellectuals like E.M. Forster, Bertrand Russell, and Lady Ossolin Morell patronized him. And he responded by satirizing them in his books. Lady Ossolin Morell, especially, an aristocratic lady, passionate, possessive, with no talent at all except for self exhibition. Lawrence was a provincial man, 
men of the working classes. In a sense, is the patron saint of all writers who never had an Oxford or Cambridge education, who are somewhat despised by those who have. Now I can support that. Andy, that is actually a huge part of my love for him, is exactly that. The fact that the fact that he was so patronised, the fact that he's he's pretty much been a figure of fun to so many people because he was patronised right from the start. He's like the full the Monty sort of blue... version of literature. Yeah. I mean, even John's mother, who's a very wonderful reader, she just refers to him as Dirty Harry. Oh, I can't, I can't get on with him, Pet, so there's Dirty Harry. He didn't care. He just made up the rules. I mean, it's he wrote, wrote 36 books. You know, he well, died at 44. Novels, he was unbelievably productive. Jeff Dice says a brilliant... It's a very good book, Out of Sheer Age. One of the things that he does brilliantly is he says, you know what, I don't even really like D.H. Lawrence's <laughs> novels very much. <laughs> The essence of Lawrence is in and the poetry and the journals and, and the person. And the, it's and this the letters and the, aliveness, isn't I mean, it? His book, Studies in Classic American Literature, everybody who's ever read, written it, I mean, it's a brilliant book of, of criticism, but it's also got to be the funniest book of criticism. And he's, people think he had no sense of humour. Lawrence had a brilliant really sense funny. of humour. He wasn't able to laugh at himself, which is a problem. I feel a lot of novelists <laughs> have that problem. He could laugh at other people really, really well. This is about Whit Walt Whitman. I am he that aches with amorous love. Well, what do you make of that? I am he that aches. First generalisation. First uncomfortable generalisation. With amorous love? Oh, God. Better a bellyache. A bellyache is at least specific. But the ache (laughs) of amorous love? Think of having that under your skin. All that. I am he that aches with amorous love. Walter, leave off. You are... (laughs) You are... I mean, this is written in, you know, the 20s. You are not he... You are just a limited Walter, and your ache doesn't include all amorous love by any means. If you ache, you only ache with a small bit of amorous love, and there's so much more stays outside the cover of your ache that you might be a bit milder about it. I am he that aches with amorous love. Chuff, chuff, chuff. Choo, 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 chuff. (laughs) Reminds one of a steam engine, a locomotive. They're the only things that seem to me to ache with amorous love, all that steam inside them, 40 million foot-pounds pressure. The ache of amorous love, steam pressure. Chuff! <laughs> you know what? Um, that's, what I'll tell you what I find fascinating about Lawrence, uh, based on my reading of The Rainbow and the things that you were reading there, my favourite chapter in The Rainbow is the teaching chapter. Oh, it's brilliant, yeah. Just as a, a bit of observation. But first of all, that's as a standalone piece of observation, that really works. But then actually I really respect him as a writer that for almost saying to the reader, I could do it like this. I could do it in this social realist way, but I'm I not don't going want to. to. No, that's I want to do I something know, different. Totally, you totally didn't want to do that. Yeah. And that's that's what I love so much about it. One of the things I was looking at my old notes, one of the things that I, I love that he said he once said in a letter to J.B. Pinker, he said, Tell Arnold Bennett that all rules of construction hold good only for novels which are copies of other novels. A book which is not a copy of other books hmm. has its own construction. And that's exactly yeah, what yeah, he yeah. does. It's what he does okay. with this in a way that I think this is sort of the, the best expression of exactly that ideal, to, to actually try and do that, to, to construct a book entirely from people's inner thoughts yeah. and feelings, which are not even available to the people themselves. 
It's, a, it's an extraordinary act of authorial bravura and, and ambition and confidence mm, mm. to be able to express the thoughts of somebody who can't articulate those thoughts to, even to themselves. Mm. Can we talk slightly a bit as well, um, it's an anecdote, but it, it's an, quite an interesting anecdote to me. When I was publisher at the Folio Society, we published a centenary edition of um, Sons and Lovers in 1913, and Colin Toybean wrote the introduction. Uh, Colin then went on to give one of those masterclasses that they have at Edinburgh International yeah. Book Festival on Sons and Lovers. What was fascinating was that there were quite a few elderly people in the audience who had known the Lawrence family and were oh my God, complaining about, you know, the people that he put in the book. And <laughs> oh this, my Lord. this, 100 years on... What's the just... name of the rich family in the rainbow? They, yeah. He didn't even change the no, name, no. and they are to this day reputedly yeah. oh, really? um, will not discuss Lawrence. So, Colm, who obviously himself writes about where he grew up in a school the, in mm. Wexford in, in Republic of Ireland, had to completely stress this was fiction. Yeah. But for them, it wasn't. And I think, but, again, mm, that's Lawrence the Rebel. It's interesting him as a novel of rural life. He writes brilliantly about animals. There's a wonderful scene where Tom Brangwen, the older, takes Anna. His uh, his stepdaughter um, out when she's her mother. The mother's having uh, childbirth. I quote it in the sentence. Yeah, actually. and he goes out into the, the cow shed, and it's the sort of breathing of the cows and the, the rhythm of the feeding of the cows and routine, which uh, which calms the child's crying down. Um, but it's it's all amped up to such a level. I mean, Andy's saying about you know whether you can get on with the prose or not. It is. I mean, you know, having really finished it, you feel like you've been in a literally yeah, been in I an emotional sort of ex- a tumble dryer. Of, you think <laughs> he must have been the most exhausting man to live with. But of course, he had TB and he died young, and I think that sort of well, accounts for the prolific nature. Burned through it, right? Uh, so this is a clip of Aldous Huxley talking about D.H. Lawrence. Huxley knew Lawrence very well in the last. I mean, he knew him his, uh, for much of his life, but he knew him very well in the last five years of his life. And this is a this is a, a reminiscence of what it, of what Lawrence was like, you know, the force of energy that Lawrence represented. I mean, he was he was very charming generally. I mean, uh, he would sometimes sort of get cross, but he he could be very amusing and uh, entertaining. And he was happy. I mean, he was happy, sort of sitting on a stone and look. I mean, very like. Uh, Remember that poem of Wordsworth's um, expostulation and reply, sitting on an old grey stone, as he says. And, of course, a lot of his life was spent in this way. And then he would get an urge to write and then write for 18 hours a day. I mean, it was was very extraordinary to see him at work. It was a sort of possession. He would rush on this, his hand moving at a tremendous rate, and never correct anything, because if he was dissatisfied, he would start again from the beginning. His capacity for perception is, is uh, I mean, it was a great pleasure and instruction, really, to go for a walk with Lawrence. I mean, the, the sort of way he perceived the world was so intense and, uh, and exciting. I don't think all this. Wow, Huxley... somebody mind expanding drugs there, Aldous. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was Huxley got the Beastie Boys book for Christmas, though, did he? Let's be, let's be honest. I said, Look, can I just read a great bit of the Jeff Dyer book? Because this is, it leads straight on from that. He says, What is surprising to find that the parts of the correspondence of a great writer I most like are those which would be edited out if any kind of selection were made, mm. i.e., those having nothing to do with his genius and everything to do with his ordinariness and the ordinariness he claimed to loathe. 
The fact that Lawrence wrote Lady Chatterley's Lover means next to nothing to me. What matters is that he paid his way, settled his debts, made nice jam and marmalade, and put up shelves. My God, it's <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn. But I don't, I don't want to talk in stereotypes here, but, you know, that's, it's also the mark of an autodidact, surely, yeah. that the fact that yeah. he consumed so much and, and that he had this extraordinarily work ethic. He just hadn't followed the work ethic of generations before him. He poured it all into being a writer mm. so true. And, and creative. I, and he was so... I mean, he, I mean, I, I don't often say this, but he was so brave, really. He just didn't care. And he, 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 yeah. you know, he lived in penury for most of his life. Mm. He, he wrote his way... He, he wrote his way out of it. He was... Um, he, 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 he was a... He was vituperative but in a very funny i mean you know that some of the letters so when he when he's taking the piss out of people i mean he's pretty and he had a you know he had a, he had a, a lot to put up with but there's some there is that sort of sense that the that i i don't think you can have lawrence without the fiction really but at the same time God, no. it that doesn't it, it doesn't really matter if you you know, if you want to, I think you can appreciate Lawrence without having to buy the whole of uh, the, the 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 grand metaphysical well, scheme. I was I was saying was I was looking for things about Lawrence that I could relate to. What could I find relatable in the modern idiom? <laughs> and of course, what I I'm, I've got a copy on route, but I, it didn't arrive in time. I was hoping to read an extract from a book called. D. H. Lawrence, the Croydon Years. Well, I yes, was going to bring. Yes, I was going to bring that up because he's uh-huh. you discovered by Nietzsche. Helen Cork. Exactly, like he discovered Nietzsche in Croydon dis- public life. He Library. discovered Nietzsche. He, the great British acolyte of Nietzsche, discovered it in the Croydon Public Library in, in December 1908 because he was working as a teacher in the Davidson Road School in Croydon from October 1908 to December 1911. That's it. And he also the the uh, long-term listeners will know of my uh, evangelical Croydon streak. <laughs> he also mentions the Swan and Sugarloaf pub in a story it's called strong. The Witch a la Mode. It's, the Swan and Sugarloaf pub is now a Tesco Express. But <laughs> oh, back no. in the 80s, it's where my friend Mark Webb had his 18th birthday party. Oh, there you go. And, the, you and the DJ refused to play 25 o'clock by the Dukes of Stratosphere at his own <laughs> birthday party. I think that's one of the reasons why I like that section of the rainbow so much. Actually, the teaching. The, the teacher, if he wanted to, and he didn't want to, which I respect... And as you suggest, Rachel, his his the sheer insolence, actually, of saying, I am going to animate this woman called Ursula. I'm going to flow through this character. Meeting of the had he but had he wanted to, it's like all the great painters. Had they wanted to paint a formal portrait, they could have done, done that, yeah. but they didn't want to. Yeah. They, they wanted to do it's something It's one of the different. things, when I was doing my Lady Chatterley research and, and all that, I, there was a point at which he wrote a letter saying, I just want to write this book and fling it in the face of the public. Those were the exact <laughs> words. I'm going to fling it in the face of the public. And you sort of think, at that point, you know, in the, 20, in, the, in the mid to late 20s, you know, how he had that much energy left, I don't know. You know, but he did. And he rewrote that book three or four times so that he could get to the point where he felt it was flingable and explosive enough that it would make a difference. Were, were the books widely read in his lifetime? No. No, because, no. well, obviously, quite a few of them were banned. 
And, yeah. uh, and, and, and that, I actually think it'd be interesting to talk about why he has fallen out of fashion now. When I studied English literature at university, he was absolutely on the syllabus. Yeah. We had to read Lawrence. I wrote one of my dissertation essays on short story or novella called The Ladybird, the Fox and the Captain's mm. Doll. Yeah. And now he's not taught and he, he isn't part of, as far as I'm aware, part of the curriculum. I think almost every one of us here would have had to read him at school. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. I think it's very interesting in the way that we are appreciating working class writers much more that Lawrence should be dusted down and brought back to life. Well, he was, I, he was I, a pioneer. I asked a friend of mine who works in the department that is responsible for the books that get onto the curriculum about why Lawrence Michael had been Gove. so popular. Yes, my friend Michael <laughs> Gove. Uh, why, why Lawrence had been so popular when we were young as uh, to be taught right mm. and had then fallen out of favor and he said a really interesting thing he said it's because this is his opinion not fact he said i think it's because in the 60s and 70s as you suggest catherine lawrence was seen as the ancestor of working class writers like alan silito and david story yep. who were considered important enough that we needed to go back and see where they had come from. Whereas, in fact, once we get into the 80s and that that generation recedes, Lawrence is seen as being an anachronism. And so he has no relevance to the literary scene of today. Not only his style, Two other things. Really important is that F.R. Liebes, the most influential critic of his generation, Raymond Williams, perhaps the second most, are both massive Lawrence fans. So... In terms of canon building, Lawrence is put, in the middle years of the century, Lawrence is put by Levis because he sees him as a kind of English Freud, you know, thinks he's the great sort of, the, you know, the novel, the bright book of life. He's the, the final flowering of the great tradition of the English novel. Raymond Williams, because he saw him as a working class writer, he was engaging with, with uh, you know, a kind of trailblazer but then everything the sexual politics by kate millet is published in 1970 and i mean you begin to see then that the, the wheels start to fall off the lawrence bus because he is you know he is very susceptible particularly if you take all his work i mean i think the novel's less so but he says some pretty terrible things that you know on one route you know the whatever that law is that you end up talking about hitler that his 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 ideas movements in world history not european history not a great book but i mean he opens himself up to the the worst kind of on one level you know, blood and bowden kind of fascism, and on the other level, yeah, feminism. Absolutely. He's he's, he's uh, fe- feminism he's a, sees him as he, as an he, as a misogynist. He pops up in the intellectuals and the masses, particularly by mm. John Kerry. This is a thing that he wrote to Blanche Jennings in a letter in 1908. A bit mean of me to read this out, but uh, blame Professor Kerry. If I have my way, I will build a lethal chamber as big as the Crystal Palace with a military band playing softly and a cinematograph working brightly, then I go out in the back streets and main streets and bring them in, all the sick, the halt and the maimed. I would lead them gently and they would smile me a weary thanks and the band would softly bubble out the hallelujah chorus. <laughs> now, that, that to be note, f- I watched the David Koresh Wacko documentary the other night. Which is not entirely <laughs> but to be fair to Lawrence, he's not, he's not being singled out by Carey in that book. It's to make the point that the intellectual trend yeah. in the early years of the 20th century Absolutely. Was, a lot was of to exterminating it, it, the it, mass of suburbia, H. the mass of lower middle class, Forster, H.G. Wells, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Guess who this is? This, this might surprise you. I don't know about women in marriage, 
One thing I do think, that if we'd known as many women as we've read books by D.H. Lawrence, we should have a clearer idea of the situation. To get down to the facts of women for oneself, I think it must be necessary to know many women. There is such a jumble of fancies and ideas about them in one's head that um, to fly to the first one you encounter and only experience that, how can you test what's true and what's most valuable? Uh, I do think DHL went deeply into all this. I don't I think he ever drew any. I, con- is- I don't think he ever drew any conclusions, but they're, that are really dependable. I mean, he never resolved the quarrel between the necessity and beauty of being united with a woman one loves, and the necessity of not being entangled or bullied or victimized or patronized or many of the other concomitants of love and marriage. If that's not Philip Larkin, I'll, <laughs> I'll eat my hat. <laughs> no, but Larkin, the thing about Larkin, Larkin really interesting with Lawrence. Larkin loved Lawrence's poetry. Larkin yeah. thought Lawrence's poetry was, was some of the greatest poetry yeah. of the century. Yeah. But he struggled with the novels. Again, this is this fascinating yeah. thing, right? Light Hardy, I, who I would argue is as great a poet as he is a novelist. I think mm. that, and again, that sort of Lawrence, I would say exactly the same. You know, you almost, you're not exactly reading two different writers there, but uh, I think the poetry has stood up in some respects where some of the novels have fallen down. I'm not mm. thinking about Kangaroo specifically, but, and that is. A testament to his extraordinary productivity and his genius. Uh, like. I think that I think you're right about the poetry. I mean, I, I don't think the novels after Women in Love really stand up to much. I it mean, there's stri- always good things in all of them. It strikes me that Lawrence is apart like, from Chatterley. Well, we don't Lawrence want to get dis- diverted onto Chatterley, but I would I would defend that book even. I mean, it's got some absolutely dreadful bits in it, but it in terms of being a an absolute thing that he wanted to say and do, it is exactly what he wanted to say and do it's a it's a it's a piece of work that he made with a purpose and he did subject it to this rewriting and making it making it fresh and that's what that's the thing about when you were you just mentioned kangaroo and those 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 shorter novels that were that he sort of bashed out quite quickly and never did that rewriting 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 Mm. on whereas the rainbow is something that took him a long time and was you know, and women in love. Very important to him that those. It was very important that they that they became alive in his hands. It was that's that was what he was trying to do to make to make the writing come alive. You know what? It really reminds me of. <laughs> so this is self-parody me saying this, but it's true. It really reminds me of that brilliant Neil Young thing, where Neil Young's response to people saying, "Well, I like this record, I didn't like that record," is to go, "Well, it's all one song." Yeah. And, yeah. and the thing with Lawrence is. In a sense, you're missing the point. I would be missing the point if I was going, well, I didn't like this novel. It doesn't matter. It's the essence of the thing. It's the, the flow of the ideas. It's that's the flow of energy. That's absolutely yeah. right, Andy. That's know. a very good way of putting it. Actually. Do you think he will come back? Into the I, I don't know. If nothing else, I, hope, I, you know, I just hope that people read the letters and the journals. No, I hope that people read... <laughs> I do hope that people read the poetry. And if you can cope with the prose, as Andy said, then, you know, there is... So much that's good in the novels. The 500 pages of The Rainbow, there are some unbelievably, I see now, turgid passages. But, you know, some of the scenes, like when the father goes and and gets the brothers and they they do an impromptu kind of carols under the the married couple's window on the back lawn... And the mad mm. speech he gives at the mm. wedding. There are some. There's some. There there's is, some wonderful bits. I mean, I just love that you can have this in a in a, in a 1915 novel. It's a letter that 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 Ursula sends to Skrebensky, um after he's he. The, the end of the book. She's basically it's it's all about Will, Anna, and Skrebensky get married, um, and without giving too much away, it doesn't doesn't because nothing is ever like I say, nothing's ever stable in a Lawrence novel. Mm-hmm. There, there, there are no. But the letter she sends is lovely. I keep living over again the lovely times we have had, 
but I don't think you liked me quite so much towards the end, did you? You did not like me when we left Paris. Why didn't you? I love you very much. I love your body. It is so clear and fine. And I'm glad you do not go naked or all the women would fall in love with you. I am very jealous of it. I love it so much. It's taken the English novel quite a long time to get anybody who can write about sex that openly and clearly. I think that's why it didn't seem anachronistic to me to reread this book because you, you know, you said you found yourself caught up in a maelstrom of emotions and you've been through the ringer when you finished reading it. But actually, how true to life and many relationships that is. Well, I I think you've lived, you've basically by the end of this, you've lived through three three marriages, affairs, kind of it's, and you are exhausted. It's, It's sort of... It is quite, <laughs> in was. a good way. <laughs> he nods. He nods soulfully. Hey, quickly before we finish, yeah. I just want to go around the table and ask: Do you have a favourite word that D. H. Lawrence yeah. uses repeatedly? I do. Yes. Okay, yeah. so I do. Okay. What is the same you, one? Okay, no, Catherine, you go first. What's yours? Loins. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a favourite, but it's the one that springs to mind immediately when I think of D. H. Lawrence. Suave loins of darkness. Inchoate. Oh, yes, he likes inchoate. Yes, that's true. Yes, all right. I love his... There's two, right? So, first of all, Feckend. Yeah, he loves Feckend. 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 He's an embarrassingly Feckend writer, that's for sure. And Maximum. He's got this weird thing with Maximum where he uses it as oh, the maximum amount. He'll say, like, Sunday was the maximum day. I think he was schooled in You know, know. But what I also like about him, <laughs> well, these, again, all these things I like in principle. Oh, yeah. Andy. No, 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 no I like in it. principle. I love the idea that he has particular words that just do it for him, that he's, that he's writing and, he's, and it's basically pouring out of him and he doesn't want to revise, he doesn't want to go back. He's like, and, he, and he just, he has to get it out, right? Yeah, it's like a sort of, there's a, there's a wonderful description in The Rainbow of, um, somebody describes somebody else as a running stream, hmm. and the person who's listening goes, "Oh, that's what that's what my wife is like. She's like a running stream." And it's a sort of it's, a it's that it's the little moments of understanding that that burst all over the place, which is sort of it's so touching and so kind of like fireworks. Yeah. And fireworks when he wants to do character, Can Gudrun says she would have no truck with tame cats, nice or not, because she believed that they were only. Well, they were all only untamed cats with a nasty, untrustworthy habit of tameness. <laughs> that's very, that's very good, very lovely. Well, look, I think we have covered the ground. We didn't read too much from the book. It's there. The, the whole quivering edifice of Lawrence's work, his poetry, and his quivering novels. comes up a lot. Quivering, yes. yeah. I think you're right, Catherine. I think worth looking at, particularly with um, with uh, the increased inter- attention this year on working class writing and people from working class backgrounds. He was. A trailblazer, a remarkable trailblazer, and as I say, still gets people proper riled up. Anyway, that's all we have time for. Huge thanks to Rachel and Catherine, to our producer Nikki Birch, and to our sponsors Unbound. Uh, you can download hundreds of other shows, plus follow links, clips, and suggestions for further reading on our website, thatlisted.fm. And of course, you can still contact us on Twitter, Facebook, and Boundless. If you've enjoyed this, Ponder the pros and cons of leaving a review with stars optional on iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you obtain your podcast-shaped inspiration. Look, we have come through. See you in a fortnight. <laughs> I would let my wife and servants read D.H. Lawrence. <laughs> Very. Magnanimous of you. Well done.
If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.